probably met with even in a hundred thousand million cowboys having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good to see everybody here and in Zoom land. Yeah, I always give a rundown or I try to. Uh, so here we have uh, Steve and Scott and I'll save you for last, a, a new visitor, uh, Keith and myself and uh, Joel who uh, comes to us from a related sangha, uh, the Kent Zendo. Uh, Related because uh, their their teacher there, Tim McCarthy, was priest ordained by Kobanchino at Jacoji. Uh, so he uh, he used to practice alongside Mike Newhall, my teacher. So it's uh, and another member of of the Kent Zendo has sat with us. On occasion, going back a few years now, Steve Steve Barris, uh, and that's he's Steve is the reason why I I haven't needed to spend uh, any money on incense because every time he would come, he'd he'd bring another box of incense. So I'm pretty well stocked up for a while, thanks to Steve. And in Zoomland, we have Jeff dialing in from. Uh, from Jamestown, New York, appreciating the fact that he uh, doesn't have to drive the, uh, the, what, two and a half hours, I think, to get here. Uh, Ryan and Cynthia and Matt, who is a first time visitor, I believe, from Zoomland, right? Okay, okay, excellent. So we've got two first-time visitors this morning, and a total of nine of us, if I'm counting correctly. So we're going to continue with a topic that we we launched into during our Zazenkai last Saturday, which uh, is dealing with the role of ritual in Zen practice. And I wanted to start, and as I'd indicated, we'd be looking uh, specifically today at the impact of Confucianism. And we're, we are gonna uh, get around to that, but, but it dawned on me last night that I really should reference at the beginning uh, this morning, which makes it even more appropriate that, uh, that Joel is here because uh, Zen Mountain Monastery, uh, there are several people from the local area that, that practice there, including Steve Barris, who I mentioned, and John, our John Wilhelm uh, used to practice there. Uh, and John Dido Lurie, the, uh, 
the founder of Zen Mountain Monastery, one of the most important uh, books of the several books he, he uh, published was titled The Eight Gates of Zen. And the intent of it was kind of a, a modern, uh, modernized version, updated version of the Eightfold Path. And the, uh, the eight gates consist of Zazen, obviously, Zen study, Dharma study, what we do uh, typically with our Dharma talks, especially on Thursday nights where we have a particular text, like currently it's, uh, it's Shahaku's Mountains and Water Sutra, which is his uh, uh, commentary on Dogen's Shobogenzo fascicle by that same title. So Zazen and Zen study, which we spend a lot of time with. Uh, and then there's uh, liturgy. And that's what we call you know, rites, rituals, liturgy. And I, I prefer rites and, and rituals as, as a description of it because I think the term liturgy is kind of a loaded term for us. It makes us think of one particular set of rites and rituals. And if we go back and, and just use the more generic term of rites and rituals, it plugs us in to to, to this whole notion at a more fundamental level. And that's what we're going to be looking at today and, and using Confucianism ultimately here as, as a way of, uh, of getting at that. Because as a matter of, of, uh, of development of the practice of Zen, as it, uh, as it became established in China, in sixth century China and in the subsequent centuries, uh, the impact of Confucianism was, was significant and it's still with us in our practice today. Usually Taoism, the other uh, endemic uh, spiritual practice in China at the time that Buddhism arrived in China, which was during the first century or so of the common era, uh, at that time, Taoism and Confucianism had been around for 500 years in China. So it was natural that they would come together, that there would be some sort of melding, merging. And I think the two areas, and I referenced this last week, where Confucianism had its, its principal impact on the development of Zen was with reference to the, uh, the concept of lineage and the concept of rites and rituals, which were fundamental to the practice of Confucianism. So I, I won't go through the other uh, of the eight gates, uh, but there, 
the uh, outside of, of uh, right action, which of course is following the precepts, ethics, morality, uh, you know, he introduced things like work practice, art practice, body practice as part of his eight gates of Zen. But of particular note for us at this time is the fact that, that rites and rituals was part of that. Zen ritual is part of the eight gates of Zen, our contemporary version of the Eightfold Path. And that's why we're spending uh, the next several weeks looking at it with some uh, with a detailed look, with a detailed focus, because it's really so important for us. It's one of the ways that we can embody our practice. And it's also a way that helps us to clarify our mind. When we're practicing together as a Sangha, and this is one of the uh, uh, things that facilitates our practice during longer periods, like even last Saturday, where we did an eight hours on Zenkai from 8.30 in the morning till 4.30 in the afternoon, including lunch. The way it gets structured in Zen practice is in such a way that you can tone down your conceptual mind. Not that you necessarily will, because that's our conditioning. We bring that with us in, into the door here as soon as we arrive at 8.30 in the morning. But part of rites and rituals, once we learn them, so we actually began last week uh, going through the, the nuts and the bolts of what are our rites and rituals because we need to learn them, understand them first. But once that initial indoctrination takes place, then it's really just doing it. It's, it's ingrained in us and it doesn't require any thought. We just follow the forms. And when we can do that, and, and, and apply ourselves wholeheartedly to it, like we were with our chanting this morning. The whole service, the bowing, the offering of incense. There's no thought in, involved in it. So it's, it's one of the impacts that rites and rituals can have for our practice is to help support a clarity of mind. Clarity of mind is, is not having it clouded with thoughts that are bouncing from here to there to everywhere. So this is an important aspect of it for Zen. Some of the more Confucian aspects that we're gonna be diving into are things about promoting harmony within a community. And it certainly has that role for us as well. But from the standpoint of our, the overall context of our practice, I think the clarity of mind is also very, very significant. So I wanted to, to put that out there right away before we uh, go into 
the next section of what I wanted to share with you this morning on it. And the next uh, piece to this is, uh, is based on some, uh, some materials that I found from two uh, California-based scholars. Uh, the first one, Catherine Bell, uh, is out of Santa Clara University, so fairly close to Jacoji. And, uh, and she, she specializes in Chinese religious and ritual studies. So very uh, appropriate to what we're, uh, we're looking at. Uh, so here, here's what I wanted to share with you from, from what she uh, has, has to say on this matter. Uh, she says that ritualized practices of necessity require the external consent of participants while simultaneously tolerating a fair degree of internal resistance. This is uh, an interesting way of looking at it, almost pointing to a middle way practice. So there's the, the consent of participants when we begin practice and we see the, the rituals involved. There's a consent, unless it's just a deal breaker and <laughs> out the door. And that happens occasionally. That happens. I knew one person who, based on his religious uh, back ground, uh, the bowing down where, where there's a, a statue on the altar was kind of going into some taboo areas. So that was, that was a big problem. And I understand that. Yeah. So it does require that kind of consent, but it's not a consent that's, that's just uh, a total 100%. Yeah, I'm fully on board with that. That's not the way it, it, I'd be alarmed if it worked that way, frankly. It'd be like, well, what, what's going on here? There's something subliminal that's, <laughs> that's involved here that's a little spooky. I don't like this. So tolerating a fair degree of internal resistance, that there's this balance, that we consent, we, we're doing it, but yet, and... Uh, you know, my resistance has pretty much dissolved, but it's been a long time, nearly 25 years that I've been doing these rituals. And in the beginning, uh, as I've mentioned, uh, it was kind of a, a concession I was willing to make, but it, there was definitely resistance. That wasn't what drew me to the practice of Zen, is to do a bunch of forms and rituals. But I figured, well, if that's part of the package deal here, I'll go along with it. So to keep, and this is gonna be important as we go along here. So keep this in mind, the balance between the consent, but also the internal resistance. That's a healthy thing. They do not function, these ritualized uh, practices, as an instrument of heavy-handed social control. 
And of course, from the standpoint of Confucianism, this is where the social control really comes into play. Because for Confucianism, it was impacting the style of governing a community or an entire state. So it really was about some aspect of, of uh, social harmony. But it's not a heavy-handed social control, the sort of thing that, uh, that in a more military vein, and we touched on this uh, at least in passing last week, you know, there's a lot of form and ritual in the military, but it gets a little more heavy-handed there in terms of its, its intent of, of establishing some control. But these ritualized practices, we're, we're talking about spiritual practices, especially from the standpoint of ch the Chinese uh, culture in the following on the path that was set for them by Confucius. It was not heavy handed. And part of the reasons, reason for this is that ritual symbols and meanings are too indeterminate and their schemes too flexible to lend themselves to any simple process of inst inst instilling fixed ideas by their nature. And we did talk about this last week. They're to be held gently, not rigidly. And you know, the comparison I think is, is appropriate to relate that to music. You know, music that's really alive and organic has that quality to it. That those who are practicing that art can bring their whole being to it. And they're not trying to sculpt it to fit a certain norm. There is some sculpting involved. But it's a, it's a sculpting that has very broad and loose boundaries so that there can be expression within it. And that's important within our rituals so that we can come together as a unit. But clearly, you know, it's a unit here this morning here at Wilted of five individuals however many there are at any given practice period we have here. And everybody is able to bring them, themselves to these rituals, to the bowing, to the various roles, to, to the doan, striking the bells and leading the chanting, the doshi going up and offering incense, and just the harmony of everything pulling together. There's an aesthetic quality to it. So the comparison with, with art forms is very apropos because there, there is an aesthetic side to this, to any ritual practice. If it's well done, it's pleasing. Harmony, however it's manifested, 
we have a very positive response to. So that's another reason for really uh, taking it on wholeheartedly. So if we have a first time visitor with us, we can make it a pleasant experience by being a, a harmonious, uh, providing a harmonious service and that we all come together and practice together. But if it was super rigid, we'd scare people off too. Just, and they'd be justified in uh, walking out the door and never having any interest in coming back. So it should feel very comfortable that there is a harmony there, but it's a harmony where we're all bringing our, our total selves to it. So we're practicing with great sincerity and authenticity, just as we are each and every one of us individually. And when we come together as a group, the group manifestation of the five of us, that's all part of ritual. So it's, it's not heavy handed. And it doesn't lead to fixed ideas. You know, we even had discussions last Saturday about you know, do we do we want to fine tune the way we do things? It's open to change. It should be. It's not some rigid thing at all. It has to be just like this. Heaven forbid. I I'm not uh, myself wired for that, so. And, and most people aren't, I don't think. And that's a healthy thing, I think. So the type, you know, Catherine Bell goes on then to say the type of authority formulated by ritualization tends to make ritual activities effective in grounding and displaying a sense of community without overriding the autonomy of individuals or subgroups, like Crooked River Zen Center, we're a subgroup. And if you go between here and Jokoji or other uh, Jokoji affiliates, the, the practice of, uh, of these forms, these rituals, they're going to have variations. That's because they're alive. I had a, a way of doing practice before I started practicing with Mike Newhall at Chikochi. And because of my practice at Chikochi, those forms changed. But I never thought, and Mike, the last thing he would have done, in fact, he made a point that, you know, I should just, you know, set, set up uh, a practice ritual that, uh, that was appropriate for here and for, for me as the teacher here. So it was heavily impacted by Jokoji. But again, it was this, this w without a fixed notion of what it should be. 
And I think we're in a process now of doing some uh, further fine tuning over the next month or two. But, but that's to receive input from outside and then sculpting something that's ours. And not just mine, but I mean, soliciting input from the Sangha as well, because it's, it's a community, a group of individuals that all of us are consenting to practice in this way. And Catherine Bell goes on then in a similar vein to say that ritualization will not work if it's perceived as not amenable to some degree of individual appropriation. So we should feel like we can come into this practice doing these forms, but we, we take them on in our own way, because that's the only way it can, it can actually happen anyway. So it's, it's accepting that fact rather than fighting against it. If, if you're held to, to performing in a way that's not authentic for you, then that, that is not, it, it runs so counter to the core teaching of Zen practice. Even though, and this is where the, these middle way uh, elements of our practice keep weaving in and out, even though there's a giving up of sense of self. Right from that foundational uh, gate of the eight gates of Zen of the practice of Zaza. So we give up this strong sense of egoic self. And from that, it allows us to even more deeply enter into the practice of ritual and form. At least that certainly worked that way for me. But yet there wasn't with this sense that, oh, because I've let go of egoic self, uh, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just putty in anybody's hands and you can create whatever you'd like to. Not in the least. Actually, it's, it's a liberating event so that we can feel more. We, we can better engage, I should say, in our life wholeheartedly. Because the biggest holdback from wholehearted engagement is when we are trying to do something that we perceive as being external to us. That's really not me. But because you know, of, of the, this uh, societal norm, you know, I'm being required or heavily expected 
to measure up to that. And that creates massive tension within us. So by giving up a sense of self, we become open. But part of that openness is being able to breathe and being able to, to fully engage without the worry about, am I doing this exactly right? So we take our practices, including forms and rituals, seriously. And we fall into it from that perspective. That this is, this is a beautiful practice, the aesthetic piece to it. And I would like to become engaged in it. I'd like to be part of that beautiful practice. But the fact that we all have to do that in our way, otherwise it loses its beauty. And it becomes you know, the practice of uh, the beginning music student who has, isn't breathing very deeply and <laughs> doesn't have a lot of uh, flexibility. They're just trying to do it right and feeling a lot of anxiety about whether they'll be able to pull that off or not. And that's inevitable when we first started, start practicing the forms. Of course, if we go to a different center, we haven't been to before because everybody's is a little different. Yeah. Wanna try and fit in as naturally as possible. So there's a little bit of anxiety maybe. But to really be able to just practice, because there's enough similarity. I've been practiced with a number of different uh, groups over the years and a number of different lo locations. There's enough commonality, even you know, maybe the most challenging one for me and for a lot of people would be going to the, the center of, of high church, San Francisco Zen Center. So that was like, boy, now I really need to. <laughs> Ramp it up a couple notches here. But yeah, give it probably not even a week out of my three weeks there and elapsed. And it was pretty good with it. That's okay. I, I could relax into it. And I don't anticipate getting to any other place with uh, where I'd, I'd feel more challenged than that, since I'm not planning any trips to Japan to practice at Heiji or anything like that. So I'm probably okay. So I think that's kind of the path we try to, to, uh, to take here at Crooked River Zen Center is to have forms that, that have some, some really beautiful and, and they go go deep, but that they're they feel natural, and they should feel comfortable, and not be stress inducing, but rather that they really be felt as as practice enhancing, because that's that's what they are, potentially 
And hopefully we can actualize that. We can make it real that they are supportive of our practice. So the other figure who I wanted to uh, utilize in this morning's talk is uh, Michael Nylon, who is a professor of early Chinese history at Berkeley. And he, this is what he has to say on this. He says, from the beginning, governing by the rights, R-I-T-E-S, of course, as opposed to the two handles of punishments and rewards was identified as the distinctively Confucian way to rule. So as we now turn our attention to Confucius and his role in this, the state we generally see is either rewarding or punishing. And using that as the way of controlling people's behavior. So the, the really revolutionary aspect of Confucianism was to try and use rites and rituals as a way of accomplishing, better accomplishing, the same objective of having harmony in a society through shared practices creating a shared culture and not requiring the heavy hand of punishments and rewards. Good boy, bad boy or girl. In the Analects, Confucius asserts the self-evident superiority of rule by ritual. Self-evident superiority. Sounds almost like a declaration of independence <laughs> of, of uh, 6th century uh, BCE China. The superiority of this method of rule by ritual. If it is really possible to govern by ritual and yielding, no more need be said since love for other humans constitutes the greatest part of good government. And that, if we bring it down from, from uh, a national level to a Sangha level, well, that's kind of a no-brainer. Why do we come together? And what, what's behind the formation of a Sangha is this love for other humans that we come together. You know, we could all sit at home and practice at home. And there are plenty of Dharma talks to dial up on your laptop. So you don't need to come here and listen to me. Dharma's all around us. And your cushion will follow you pretty much wherever you are. But this this harmony within a community of being able to come together and practice together and share these forms together harmoniously, but yet all of us feeling like we're completely engaged in them. 
it's it's me and it's us all at the same time kind of like for my love of jazz you know, it's like uh, a jazz ensemble and the, the the more comfortable each musician in the ensemble is with their practice, the more beautiful what they create coming together. And I think that comes out in Zen Sanghas too. The longer they've been around and you have a core of practitioners and it's clear and the clarity of it is is from the life force that's that's put into it. It's not because oh they're doing it the right way. <laughs> that's a little a little part of it maybe, but I mean, it could. I remember at Jacoji uh, uh, when I uh, was. The first uh, time or two I was there, when I was in the process of taking Michael on as my teacher, uh, I was really struck deeply by the way practice was carried out at Chicago. And, and the World Cup in soccer happened to be going on at the time. And, and Brazil uh, had a different style of play, kind of that. The, uh, the beautiful game, or I forget exactly what the term was, but it was just this natural flowing together. And I remember uh, talking to Mike one night, uh, in a late night session we had about how I, I really thought that, that practice at Chicochi was kind of like the, uh, or was like the, the soccer team of just these people coming together and playing this beautiful game that just felt so natural, not forced in the least. And of course I was already drawn to Mike as a, uh, who I, I thought would be the right teacher for me and then have this the center to to have as my spiritual base and just this is it this is it i found my home and this is yeah just from a standpoint of efficiency if you think about it and and back in the uh, early days of Confucianism, they certainly did think about it. Uh, it's far more efficient way of organizing anything is to, to set it up in such a way that people will come together and naturally you know, work harmoniously. Because it does become part natural to us. It's part of our nature if we really feel that it is us rather than trying to take and force us into something that's not us. 
But if it's open and flexible enough to accept each of us as we are, any sangha, this is certainly true of Crooked River, has a whole wide array of different people. Sometimes when I reflect on it, it just astonishes me. What a group of folks to be able to come together and practice together in something so deeply meaningful as what we do here. This, this thing we call Zen practice that could take in all these people. As we refer to it in our study of Shahaku's text, you know, this karmic consciousness that we all have, each individually unique, all the stuff everybody has to deal with in their lives and have had to deal with. And we'll continue to have to deal with. But yet, we come together. And we do this in harmony. That's wrapped up into this notion of rites and ritual. It's kind of like if, if sutras are, are, are derived from the term suture, you know, sewing together, uh, it's kind of this, the sutra-like quality of, of these rites and rituals. They sew us together. So, so we're going to actually, I'm reaching a point here where I... Keith needs to leave and he's our recording engineer. And I'm at the end of my comments here anyway. So I was about to open it up uh, for your uh, uh, questions, comments, uh, any observations you'd like to share. So in, in between that, uh, Keith's gonna come over here and uh, hit whatever buttons he needs. Okay, okay. So we can just go ahead. All right. Yeah. Hope, uh, hope the soccer, hope they can play the beautiful game. <laughs> you can give them a pep talk now. <laughs> All right. Well, and I'm going to turn this and uh, try to, uh, we're, we're going to get, uh, Keith and I were discussing this, uh, a speaker and a microphone combined that we can set in the middle of the room here so that it'll help facilitate these discussions. So Zoom lands.